Hi everyone and welcome to this latest instalment of our Brexit and Beyond podcast and I'm absolutely delighted this week to welcome Isabel Hertner who apart from being a fantastic academic is a colleague and friend here at King's. Isabel is senior lecturer in the politics of Britain in Europe at King's College but is also an expert on all things European. So Isabel welcome to you. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And unsurprisingly, we're going to focus on Germany and what's going on in Germany today. And I suppose the first question, your starter for 10, is how big a deal is this change of Chancellor from Angela Merkel to Olaf Scholz? I mean, after 16 years, it's a big deal. There are so many young Germans who have never seen anyone but Angela Merkel as as the chancellor, right? And I remember a few years ago, my my godson saying, Isabel, can actually a man become chancellor too? And that's when I realized that, you know, this is how he had grown up in in Germany. This is all he knew. So, of course, after 16 years, having, having someone new in place is a big deal. Will it be a big, big, big change? in terms of how Germany is governed and how it will interact with Europe and the world. That remains to be seen. I think there will be some differences, but it's probably not a radical shift. We'll we'll get onto that in more detail in a minute, but I suppose it can go one of two ways after a very long tenure, can't it? It can be a sort of appetite for change, Mm -hmm. uh, which I remember you know, from 1997 in this country, that's just like, oh God, can we just have something new? But that can sometimes be associated as well with a degree of concern because people have got so used to the sort of old regime that they're slightly nervous about changing. How would you characterize the mood in Germany? It's, It's an interesting one because Angela Merkel till the very end was a very popular politician. After such a long tenure, still a lot of respect from across the board from the left well center left and center right let's say yeah um so still a lot of respect for her and so i think it'll be big shoes to fill for olaf scholz the the new chancellor at the same time there was some appetite for change perhaps not as radical as, as some people would have liked it and i was thinking the other day that germans are conservative with a small K in the sense that they went for more continuity than change, given that the new chancellor, Olaf Scholz, is a very centrist kind of guy, humble in his bearings, the way he talks, the way he does politics. It's not that different from Angela Merkel, the way he talks. He's very quiet and Mm. others were shouting at each other during those leader debates on on television, he was the the calm one in the middle. So I think it's probably not such a radical change. Well, a change in style at least, but it's a very different sort of coalition in power now. Let's sort of think about some of the issues. And I suppose the first issue is at the EU level, how Germany might approach the issue of EU Debt. And here it's interesting, isn't it? Because it seems to me that the SPD and the Greens are more relaxed in their attitude towards EU debt than the FDP, who, of course, will have the finance minister in the person of Christian Lindner. Do you think there is the potential for real tension within the coalition over this? Normally, what's in the coalition contract is what the coalition is set to do. 
And those were really tough um, negotiations from, from what I understood. And yes, it has more the signature of the FDP. When it comes to fiscal, economic and fiscal policies, the FDP got its way, I would say, much more than the SPD and, and the Greens who wanted a, a more social Europe more mutualization of debt, more redistribution. So the FDP says, no, the Maastricht criteria have been good. They've been flexible enough. We we need to keep them. Um, Whatever emergency funding we've made available for COVID, all very good and useful, but we're not going to expand that. It's fiscally rather conservative, this new government, also at the European level and the domestic level um, as well, um, to a large extent. So it is interesting, isn't it? Because the coalition have found a rather cunning way to circumvent domestic spending rules by using COVID money for sort of climate action. I think that's true. And that's not the sort of fiscal creativity I would associate with the FDP usually. I mean, how do you do it? You don't want to raise taxes because you've said during the election campaign all along, we're not going to raise taxes. So you can't do that all of a sudden. It's a big issue for the FDP supporters, you know, so small state not US style, but German style, small state. So no, you don't raise taxes. You can't um, increase debt because that's in the constitution um, and that's going to be respected. So where does the money come from? And even the FDP wants to invest in public infrastructure. So digitization was a big, big issue during the campaign because schools, public administration, local council, all these, these services, they look like 20th century services in Germany, completely old-fashioned, and there was always the talk of a fax machine in public administration. So all of that needs to be funded, as well as, of course, the technology to counter climate change, improve um, public transport and all of that. So yeah, there have been some creative ways of of doing that. But I do think that problems will emerge there because COVID isn't going away. And I wonder how they're not going to increase taxes. I, I don't see how it's possible. There's massive uncertainty around all of that, isn't there? There was a headline in the Times the other day saying Sunak wants to slash taxes. And I was thinking there's a whole load of assumptions lying behind that about how COVID progresses. And you know, Yeah, very unpredictable, I think. Yeah. Better be open about it. <laughs> Quite a moment to be making public policy. I suppose the other significant issue is having the Green Party in power in a country that, for all the talk, has had relatively high carbon emissions per capita by European standards. Does this mark a sea change in environmental policy and reactions to the climate crisis in Germany, do you think? I really hope so. Um, but give some, take some, is how I would describe it. So, so no speed limits on the autobahn. No, oh my God, that is such a big issue in uh, for some German voters. And it is so irrational. And it is also very sanctimonious, this debate, I find, because the Germans like to portray themselves as also green and how we recycle and all of that. And then when it comes to it, there's no speed limit on the on the autobahn in many places. There is yeah. in practice, but still. Yeah, but um, the FDP insisted um, that this isn't going to happen and also that, you know, we shouldn't be increasing taxes for drivers, so we shouldn't make it more expensive for people to commute to work and and all of that. So car drivers aren't worse off at all, and that must bug a lot of green supporters. There are ambitious pledges on electric vehicle uptake, aren't there? Yeah, because the the uptake has been really slow in Germany, comparatively. Mm. 
They love their traditional BMW and, oh, well, all the emission scandals you, you know about yeah, it. Yeah. So it, it's about time something is, is happening there. So there are ambitious aims there. And then also the phasing out of coal energy. Ideally, this is what the coalition contract says, ideally eight years earlier than it was planned under the Merkel government, which is for the Green Party probably still too long. But hey, it's a, it's a compromise, the coalition contract. It's 177 pages of compromise. And of course, it's worth, it's worth pointing out that they're making that pledge in the context of a country that has turned its back on nuclear. And that is very reliant on other countries for energy. That is the big downside of phasing out of nuclear. Germany is very reliant on, on other countries and Russia is, and yeah. that creates a lot of problems. We will, of course, come back to Russia. Just on, on nuclear, actually, while we're, while we're on the issue, do you think there is a, an issue over NATO's nuclear sharing arrangements with this new government or will they sort of tolerate? I think they will tolerate it. You know, the transatlantic um, relationship and the European relationship does matter a great deal for all of them. Germany being seen as a grown-up and reliable international partner. And they say, well, you know, Europe needs to step up a little bit and become more independent in its own defense and, and foreign policy. But NATO, you know, we want to stay in NATO. NATO needs to play a big role. Everything has to happen in accordance with NATO. So I, I can't imagine them taking such a radical step. And Germany, of course, has started to talk a good game, at least when it comes to foreign policy and being more activist. And I suppose casting NATO into doubt is probably not the best way to act on that. I suppose the other issue that is massively salient at the moment is the issue of migration. And I mean, you've written before about the fact that Merkel had a more liberal approach to migration than many in her party. Mm -hmm. Do we see this new government as ushering in some kind of shift in German position on this? Yeah, the coalition contract talks about that. And it's basically we want a more pragmatic naturalization law and we want a more humane migration law as well that makes legal migration easier than the really dangerous Mediterranean route and all the horrible things we've seen over the past decade. So there are attempts to do that and yeah, provide more resources also for refugees once they enter Germany. So better classes, uh, more integration mm -hmm. measures. So a whole new package. I would say it's a an even more liberal law and that has very much the signature of the social democrats and the greens and do you think this will have an impact on eu approaches to migration i mean they really want to push for a more european asylum law fairer um, distribution of, of refugees but then the german government has been trying to do that now for years and hasn't had much of a success right i mean maybe they think be the change you want to see I don't know how much they can convince other European countries. I, I don't see that there is a lot of that in Italy or in France, never mind Austria, that there is much hunger at the moment for liberalizing migration law and in particular refugee law. Angela Merkel was often criticised for being far too soft on Viktor Orban, uh, not least for party political reasons because of trying to keep the EPP together. Is this an area where we can see or predict or expect something of a shift? Do we expect the Schultz coalition to be slightly stronger in its condemnation of rule of law in Hungary and Poland? Yeah, I think so. Because yes, there are no party political affiliations. The parties in charge in Poland and in Hungary aren't 
in these European party groups as the German, in the same that the German government parties are. So there's no sense of obligation or historical legacies there. I mean, and that that is in the coalition contract that really the commission needs to take a stronger stance and to, you know, to fight democratic backsliding. So I do think Olaf Scholz, but also the new foreign secretary, Annalena Baerbock, is going to use stronger words in this context and push for more European action. And on that, I think Baerbock also has been quite striking in the language she uses about China and Russia in comparison to the CDU. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a trade-off here, isn't there? I mean, Germany has been accused by some of its allies of placing too much emphasis on trade and not enough emphasis on geopolitics. Do we think that balance might shift? I mean, there were signs it was shifting even under, under Merkel towards the end of her tenure, but is that is that going to become more marked, do you think? The question is in what kind of position Germany actually is. Um, yeah. You know, if anyone is the EU that can perhaps achieve something. Germany by itself can't really achieve um, a lot. It could perhaps lead the EU. And that is something that I think they are now aspiring to do. So there's a lot in that coalition contract about responsibility, that Germany needs to take more responsibility um, at the European level. And they may well try to, to lead on that more robust response. But it only works if you have allies and like-minded governments in place. And sadly, Britain, now that it has left the EU, Britain would have been a good like-minded partner in dealing with more robustly with Russia. Do you think, do you think this coalition is serious about Germany taking a more leading role in foreign policy? It's something you hear German politicians say every now and again. I've never seen much in the way of action on the basis of those words. But <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I mean, Gerhard Schröder said it at the end of the 1990s, early 2000s. And did we see a lot of change? Mm, probably not. There's still discomfort in, you know, taking the lead and in, in Europe for all sorts of historical um, reasons. But could it be filling a vacuum, perhaps, with other European countries pulling below their weight? Think of Italy. Britain has left. France is now in a very acrimonious election campaign, I think a really difficult one, never in a strong position in that kind of situation. Might they I, step up? I'm quite cynical about this sort of thing, but I do, I do sort of get the impression sometimes that it's quite comfortable for Germany to hide behind its kind of, we don't want to overstep the mark and no one wants to see Germany taking leadership. And that just makes life easier. I mean, for instance, Germany gets away yeah. spending under the 2% NATO target. And I imagine we'll continue to spend under the 2% mm -hmm. NATO target going forward. Yeah, absolutely. More centre-left government is not going to change that. If the Conservatives don't, then I don't see who else would do that. So it's this question of more responsibility is a difficult one. And I also wonder if a, such a diverse coalition yeah. will always be in the place to do that. I think it would have been easier had there been a two-party coalition, either centre-left or centre-right, and, you know, formulating a clear and coherent policy on Germany in the EU. Something else that I find fascinating from what I confess was a flick through the coalition agreement rather than a detailed read is what it says about EU treaty reform. Mm. Uh, and this is an area, I know another area you've written about, because you've written about the sort of failure of centre-left parties to sort of openly debate their EU policies sufficiently mm -hmm. in the past. And do you think, in a sense... This is real, I suppose, would be my question. I mean, lots of people talk about their ambitions to reform the EU. It seems that the sort of leading member states have to do this every now and again. But 
doesn't always lead to anything. Do you think this is a serious ambition? I think it was kind of obvious that Angela Merkel let Emmanuel Macron make all these proposals, right? This is what we want the EU to look in the future. And it was a bit, I thought the German government over the past years was really rather passive, just doing the minimum of, of what it had to do. And I think there is now a certain appetite for change. Issues like making the European Parliament more powerful, by giving it the right to initiate legislation, for instance, having a proper EU foreign minister, naming them as such, having a convention to come up with a new treaty, a new constitutional treaty. I mean, all these parties are very pro-European and the text almost reads like a utopia coming from Britain, yeah. doesn't it? And I do think there are ambitions there, but let's see what next crisis is on the way um who's going to stop them i think there are genuine ambitions but uh, let's see how it <laughs> and i must say i'm old enough to remember chancellor cole talking about giving more power to the lender before the amsterdam treaty and then all the reports of the actual negotiations were that he said absolutely no way i'm not going to do this in the actual negotiation i'm just going to talk about it beforehand so it does seem to me that there is sometimes a little bit of virtue signaling goes on about these kind of things that people aren't really meaning to carry through in power. But as you say, we're going to have to wait and see. There's one question actually I've always wanted to ask you. Uh, <laughs> what the hell is a lecture in the politics of Britain in Europe? What is What does your job description say? Yeah, that is such an interesting one. And I wondered if it's ever going to change to Britain outside of Europe. I guess it looks at Britain and how it's interacts with uh, the rest of Europe before and after Brexit and the need to understand the, the EU, but also the member states. And yeah, I concentrate on, on Britain, Germany and France in, in my research. And, and, you, and you have this, this wonderful sort of comparative perspective. I mean, your latest book, I think, is the Politics UK latest edition. It's a book that... Mm basically looks at how British government works. Now, there's a lot of debate about the sort of comparative merits of British and German government. I don't know if the book by John Kampfner that praises mm -hmm. Germany to the skies, for instance, and it's implicit in or explicit in there that it's being praised in comparison to a UK that is failing. Do you think it's fair to sort of characterise German politics as a sort of being a good model compared to the chaos in the UK? No. I think it's that is really an oversimplification. And Germany also has a lot of problems and every aspect of German governance, social cohesion, solidarity within Germany. So it's not that federalism works all that well, an administration that looks like it did in the 20th century and all of that. I, I'm not a big fan of that gross oversimplification. But I still think that nowadays... By and large, Germany is better governed than the UK. That is still something that I think, despite all the problems. I mean, how, how do you mean? I think there is just more of a state, more of a welfare state in Germany. There's still more public funding available. Austerity, I think, has destroyed a lot um, in the UK. And I, I see it in comparison to 2007 when I arrived in the UK and I felt it was a slightly different country from what it is um, today because so much money has been saved in, in public services. And in Germany, there's still more of a state than in Britain. And it's also more outward looking than Britain is these days. And there's perhaps more compassion for for others. And I think we've seen that in the refugee crisis. I don't want to overplay this because Afterwards, the German 
borders were, were shut. So, I mean, I really don't want to overplay this at all, but I do think there are certain differences. That doesn't mean that, that Britain can't get there again, but at the moment I'm a little bit pessimistic. One thing that sort of fascinates us Brits, which is the sort of long coalition forming process in mm. Germany. And I wonder what you thought, whether on the one hand, people argue that this is a good thing for democracy because it makes parties work hard. They have to find compromise. They have to find a way of working together. The negative side, I suppose, is that it's it, it stymies serious political change and, and might even alienate voters. I mean, what, do you come down on either side of that argument? I was intrigued reading the coalition agreement and it said right at the beginning that Germany is now a very diverse country and that a diverse government is in a good place to reflect that diversity and represent that sort of population and, and address the challenging issues. And I was kind of thinking, of course, that's positive spin, but there is some truth in that. There is some truth in having different voices in a government and avoiding groupthink, balancing each other out. So the small state, liberal FDP being a counterweight perhaps to, to the left who, who think the state needs to be doing everything, the FDP will balance that out and say, look, but freedom, human rights, you know, this may be people's own responsibility. And I think in the best case scenario, it can be a representative government. In the worst case scenario, of course, it's just the lowest common denominator. And that's, that is terrible. It's the first time we have a three party coalition. There's no precedent for that at the federal level, at least the regions have had those for a while, nothing new about it for them. But I think you just have to give them a bit of a chance and see what they're doing with it. And if the sum is, is greater than its parts, I would say. It's the, the best option Germany had, I guess, after those electoral results. I, I can only hope that they will address all the issues that really need to be addressed in, in Germany. And I guess one thing that I do, well, I did find striking is it's a lot about the future. There's a lot about what needs to be addressed now for the future. There's a lot about sustainability, about children and, and their rights and the next generation. And that I thought was, was quite positive in a country that is amongst the oldest in, in Europe. That, you know, there is now some thought, you know, more thought about uh, the young generation. And that is something I found quite positive. German politics is still quite white, isn't it? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I was looking at the cabinet and there is exactly one cabinet minister from a German-Turkish yeah. background, Cem Özdemir, who's been around for ages from the Green Party. And that's it. Everyone else is, is white. It's gender balanced, not counting the chancellor. OK, so that is slow progress. The Bundestag, as it is now, has never been more diverse. So yeah. that is I think promising, but it just takes time for those MPs to get into positions of power. And I think Germany has a lot to catch up with there. And finally, are there any lessons from Schultz's victory for other centre-left parties, notably the Labour Party? Is there, are there tactics he deployed that could be useful elsewhere or do those lessons not travel over frontiers? Some lessons do but you can't transplant it to British politics. I think his very sober sort of humble style is perhaps not something that the British electorate <laughs> values, is my impression. He's not going to give you an Oxford Union style in, in Parliament at all. Not that kind of guy. I guess his topics, though, they were 
typically center left um, campaign topics. So it was a yeah. lot about respect and justice, giving people fair salaries, increasing the minimum wage, and especially for key workers. So it's basically the bread and butter issues for a social democratic right. party. And that's what they concentrated on. And that worked for him. That's probably something that the other center left parties in Europe should also remember that they should be doing what they do best. But I mean, his his victory wasn't all that no. huge, yeah. right? I mean, it's not like, wow, a landslide. And the other thing is that his opponent from the CDU really discredited himself. I mean, he really, rubbish, he? oh, he led such a dreadful campaign, embarrassing. And he wasn't seen as someone who is serious, someone who has a grasp of the policies, who sees and understands details. So it was a really bad campaign. So that played in his favor. But one thing that was also stressed by SPD officials and uh, politicians that I um, spoke to recently at the Labour Party conference, they said the party has never been so united behind a candidate. So he's not the party leader, Scholz, right? There's a duo, a more left-wing um, duo that is the party leadership. And rather than doing intrigues and, and undermining him, which has happened in the past, they stood behind him. And they've so far, they've played together. And that also strengthened the campaign. So I guess a more united party that respects different wings and factions is uh, more likely to succeed. That is perhaps a lesson. That could be a lesson for the Labour Party, yes. Interesting one. Isabel, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I thought that was fascinating. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you.